This is the hour of doom. And bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast. I'll explain that in a second. A paragon of peace in perpetuity in a perilous world. I'm Joe Halton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of the award-winning survival website doomandbloom.net. And a heck of a guy, if I may say so myself. Our show is like the Garden of Eden, except with raised beds, and it belongs to Nurse Amy instead of some lady named Eden. And speaking of Nurse Amy, nurse practitioner extraordinaire, master gardener, and purveyor of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net, so smart Jeopardy has to take an online test to play her. She is not with us today. Orders at our store have been coming so fast and furious in the wake of the, I guess, the Ukraine conflict that she's actually at the mystical warehouse of mystery packing medical kits as we speak. On this show, you're going to get the conventional medical wisdom and the unconventional medical wisdom, whatever it takes to get your family medically prepared for tough times. But you got to listen to this first. No exceptions. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only. Do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Or don't. Why be prepared? It's not like Russia's going to invade something, that's for sure. But what happens in a disaster when the hospitals are crowded or reduced to rubble and there's nowhere else to turn? Guess who's going to be the family medic? Surprise, it is you. So you better get off your duff and learn some stuff. Before we get going, I just want to mention that the new fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, greatly expanded and revised, actually hit Amazon's top 20 of all 20 million books on there recently. And I am just thrilled. Thank you so much for your support. If you haven't gotten our greatly expanded new book, check it out on Amazon or at store.doomandbloom.net. At Amazon, by the way, they only have the black and white version. We do have the color version at our store. Given the worsening status of affairs in Eastern Europe and various other places around the globe, it's becoming clear that the risk of a confrontation involving nuclear weapons is a growing, hopefully small, but growing possibility. The nations that are stoking tensions are, for the most part, ones that have nukes in their arsenal, and not all of them are guided by reason. I've been advised by some good friends who are way more popular in the survival world than this old sawbones to not talk about this subject, either because they don't believe it's possible or because I'd sound alarmist. Oh, we're all going to die in World War III. Well, that's not just true, as I hope to point out. And if you don't know anything about nuclear events, radiation, and the like, this is probably the time to learn. Short of an asteroid hitting Earth or an ultra-deadly world pandemic, no disaster has the potential to destroy society as much as a nuclear war. Even minor radiation accidents, such as reactor meltdowns, may cause long-standing damage to entire areas. The medic must always have a plan of action for every type of disaster to increase the chances for survival of group members. It's worthwhile to know the types of nuclear weapons. The least destructive one, using radioactive materials that is, is the dirty bomb used by terrorists. A dirty bomb is not technically a nuclear weapon. It uses conventional explosives to disperse radioactive material in the general area. Usually the effect of the explosion itself causes more damage and casualties than the radioactive elements. Our concept of an atomic bomb, as developed by the Manhattan Project in the 1940s, is one that uses what's called nuclear fission. The explosion is caused by a chain reaction that splits atomic nuclei, and the result is a wave of intense heat, light, pressure, and kinetic energy equaling thousands of tons, also called kilotons, of TNT. 
This is followed by the release of radioactive particles in a cloud that resembles a mushroom if it's a ground blast. And mixed with dirt and debris, the particles fall back to Earth, contaminating crops, animals, and people. This will happen at the site of detonation, also known as Ground Zero, but will also be blown elsewhere on the prevailing winds. Atomic bombs gave way to hydrogen bombs, also described as thermonuclear weapons due to the generation of extreme heat during detonation. Hydrogen bombs use a process known as nuclear fusion, which takes two light nuclei and forms a heavier one using variations of hydrogen atoms called isotopes. The fusion process requires high temperatures, usually involves a fission reaction to initiate it. H-bombs don't just generate atomic power in the kilotons, they can reach levels in the megatons, millions of tons of TNT. Another type of thermonuclear weapon is the neutron bomb, which generates much less kinetic energy and thermal damage, but much more radiation. Enhanced radiation weapons like the neutron bomb generate a fusion reaction that allows neutrons to escape the weapon with only a limited blast. Originally designed to counter massive Soviet tank formations, the neutron bomb is an example of a tactical nuclear weapon. The effect is to leave infrastructure mostly intact while wiping out human targets due to massive radiation. The impact of a nuclear bomb is related to its yield, a measure of the amount of energy produced. The Hiroshima atomic bomb had a yield of 15 kilotons, while the Tsar bomb, detonated by the Russians in 1961, had a yield of 51 megatons. That's 51,000 kilotons. Most of the weapons stockpiled in the U.S. and Russia today consist of bombs in the 100 to 500 kiloton range, much stronger than Hiroshima, much weaker than the Tsar bomb. This is because they are meant to be fired at major cities in clusters rather than one big giant bomb, which would be easier to intercept than, say, let's say 20 smaller ones. You can expect a generally circular pattern of local damage, but various factors come into play besides the yield of the weapon. The attitude of the explosion, the altitude of the explosion, weather, wind conditions, and nearby geologic features also play a role. The U.S. government estimates the distribution of damage from fission bombs to be 50% shockwave, that's kinetic energy, 35% heat, thermal energy, 5% initial blast radiation, and 10% dispersed radiation or fallout. You might think there isn't anything you can do to survive a nuclear attack, and if you're at ground zero at the moment of detonation, you know what, you're probably right. But your chances of survival, given time, distance, and protection, may be better than you think. The atom bomb dropped on Hiroshima in 1945 flattened buildings over a roughly four square mile area and killed 60,000 people instantly. Another 90,000 to 140,000 succumbed later to injuries and radiation exposure. Now, although this represents a total of 150,000 to 200,000 fatalities, the entire population did not perish. At the time of the explosion, there were about 350,000 people in Hiroshima, including 43,000 soldiers. Indeed, a Japanese citizen named Tutsomo Yamaguchi survived both 1945 atomic bomb detonations in Hiroshima and in Nagasaki and lived to reach the age of 93. This shows that although horrific in its effect, distance from ground zero and other factors besides the power of the bomb itself play a role in a nuclear weapon's lethality. A 50 megaton H-bomb like the Tsar Bomba, however, would cause a much larger circle of devastation than the Hiroshima bomb, with widespread fatalities of at least 20 miles from ground zero, and third-degree burns 50 miles away. Windows, indeed, were reported shattered from the 1961 blast as far away as Norway and Finland. Damaging radiation can be deadly to living things. 
The quick definition of radiation is energy given off by unstable matter in the form of rays or high-speed particles. All matter is composed of atoms. Atoms are made up of various parts. The central nucleus of an atom contains minute particles called protons and neutrons. The atom's outer shell contains other particles called electrons. The nucleus has a positive electrical charge while the electrons have a negative electrical charge. Neutrons are, well, neutral. These entities work within the atom to form a stable balance, and they do this by throwing off excess energy, and that energy is what we call radiation. Radiation is divided into ionizing and non-ionizing. We're bombarded daily by radiation from multiple non-ionizing sources, the sun's visible light and heat, microwaves, radio waves, radar, and others. This type of radiation deposits energy into the materials through which it passes, but doesn't break molecular bonds or destabilize atoms. These negative effects, however, can be caused by ionizing radiation. Atoms become charged and unstable, a very unhealthy state for living cells. There are several types of radiation given off by a nuclear weapon, alpha, beta, and neutron particles, also gamma rays and x-rays. Let's talk about alpha radiation. Alpha radiation occurs when an atom undergoes radioactive decay, giving off an alpha particle. Due to their charge and mass, alpha particles only travel a few centimeters and don't even penetrate the outer layer of skin. If ingested, inhaled, or injected, however, alpha particles are capable of causing considerable damage to living cells. How about beta radiation? Beta radiation also takes the form of particles. Due to the smaller mass, it's able to travel farther in air than an alpha particle, but can be stopped by, say, a thick piece of plastic, a stack of paper, even clothing. It can penetrate a short distance into exposed skin, though, causing beta burns, which may require treatment. The main threat, however, is from ingesting contaminated food sources growing in fallout areas. We'll talk about fallout shortly. Gamma rays and x-rays are next. Gamma rays and x-rays, unlike alpha and beta particles, are two types of radiation. They don't consist of any particles at all. Instead, they're pure electromagnetic energy. Think of gamma rays as x-rays on steroids. Gamma radiation can travel much farther through air than alpha or beta particles. It's responsible for most ill effects on humans after a nuclear explosion. Gamma rays can, however, be blocked by various materials. The thickness required for each material, well, that depends on the density. Some examples of elements that are gamma ray emitters include iodine-131, that's radioiodine, cesium-137, cobalt-60, and radium-226. Lastly, there's neutron radiation. Neutron radiation consists of high-speed particles with high penetrating power. Neutron particles travel further in air than other forms of radiation, but can be blocked by materials that contain hydrogen, such as water, H2O, and concrete. When neutron particles are absorbed into a stable atom, they make it unstable and more likely to emit radiation. Therefore, it's the only type that can turn other materials radioactive. Although radiation is a major issue after nuclear blast, it should be noted that most damage from such weapons are the result of massive amounts of energy generated by shock and heat waves. The blast kills people close to ground zero and causes major trauma much further away. Flying debris and falling buildings account for more casualties than you can imagine. The heat is so intense that almost everything close to ground zero is vaporized. At a distance, the extreme heat still causes severe burns and starts firestorms. Let me take a second to discuss fallout. For now, we'll discuss it as it relates to nuclear reactor meltdowns. Our utilization of nuclear reactors for power places us at risk for radiation exposure when they malfunction or are damaged. 
Examples include the meltdowns at Chernobyl in 1986 and in Fukushima in 2011. A meltdown, technically known as a core melt accident, happens when reactor heat increases beyond safe levels, causing a nuclear element to exceed its melting point. Meltdowns usually occur as a result of nuclear plant coolant system failures, and this failure can occur as a result of damage caused by natural disasters such as earthquakes or tsunamis. They can also be caused by human error or terrorist attack. Regardless of the cause, the melted radioactive elements are released into the atmosphere. This has serious implications for populations living both near and far from the event. Radiation released into the atmosphere is known as fallout, as I mentioned before. Fallout is the particulate matter that is thrown into the air by a nuclear explosion. This dust can travel hundreds if not thousands of miles on the prevailing winds. The end results are fields, livestock, and people covered with radioactive material. The higher the fallout goes into the atmosphere, the farther it travels downwind. This material contains elements that are hazardous if they're inhaled or ingested like radioiodine, cesium, and strontium. Even worse, fallout is absorbed by the animals and plants that make up the food supply. A nuclear power plant meltdown is usually less damaging than a nuclear blast as the radiation doesn't make it as high up in the air as a mushroom cloud would from an atomic bomb. The worst effects will be felt by those in the area of the reactors. Lighter particles like radioactive iodine will travel the farthest and are the main concern for those far from the actual explosion or meltdown. The level of exposure depends on the distance that radioactive particles have to travel from the meltdown site as well as the time it took for the radiation to arrive. With all sorts of tensions involving nuclear powers, it's nothing short of a miracle that no one has actually used an atomic bomb or a nuclear weapon in anger since the 1945 events in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Today, we may be closer to such an event than ever before. Let's discuss the medical effects of radiation exposure. These are collectively known as radiation sickness or acute radiation syndrome, ARS. A certain amount of radiation exposure is tolerable actually over time, but your goal as medic is to shelter your group so they receive as small a dose as possible. To accomplish this goal, we should first clarify what the different terms are for measuring the quantities of radiation. Scientists use a variety of confusing terms such as RADs, REMs, Sieverts, Becquerels, Grays, Curies to describe radiation exposure amounts. Different terms are used when describing the amount of radiation being given off by a source, the total amount of radiation that's actually absorbed by a human or animal, or the chance that a living being will suffer ill effects from radiation. Becquerels and Curies describe the amount of radiation that, say, a hunk of uranium gives off into the environment. They're named after scientists who were the first to work with, and indeed die from, radioactivity. RADs are the amount of radiation in the environment that is actually absorbed by a living thing. Some use the term gray these days similarly. 100 RADs equals 1 gray. REMs and Sieverts are the measurement of the risk of health damage from the radiation absorbed. For our purposes, let's use RADs. RAD stands for Radiation Absorbed Dose, and as I mentioned a second ago, measures the amount of radiation energy transformed to some mass of material, well, typically humans. An acute radiation dose, one received over a short period of time, is the most damaging. The effects on humans corresponds to the amount of radiation total absorbed. For comparison purposes, you can assume that the average person absorbs about maybe 0.6 RADs per year from natural or household sources. 
at 30 to 70 rads, that's a lot more, you can expect to start seeing symptoms. You may expect mild headache or nausea within several hours of exposure, but still you will expect to have a full recovery. At 70 to 150 rads, mild nausea and vomiting, that's seen in about a third of patients. Decreased wound healing, increased susceptibility to infection, all these things start to occur, but still recovery is expected in most cases. At 150 to 300 rads, you can expect to see moderate nausea and vomiting in a majority of victims. Fatigue and weakness, that's going to be experienced by many of them. And infection and bleeding is going to maybe start occurring around this dose level due to a weakened immune system. Burns might be seen and medical care will be required for many. Occasional deaths at about 300 rads exposure, well, you might expect to see that. At 300 to 500 rads, moderate nausea and vomiting, fatigue and weakness will be seen in the grand majority of people. Diarrheal stools, dehydration, loss of appetite, skin breakdown, and infection, they're going to be very, very common. Hair loss will be visible in most over time. And at the high end of exposure, well, you can expect at least a 50% death rate. Once you go over 500 rads, well, spontaneous bleeding, fever, stomach and intestinal ulcers, bloody diarrhea, dehydration, low blood pressure, infections, hair loss, all of this stuff should be anticipated in almost everybody, and death rates will approach 100%. All the effects related to exposure may not happen at the same time and aren't immediate in many cases. Hair loss, for example, may take 10 to 14 days to appear. Deaths often occur weeks after exposure. Now be aware if knocked off the grid and modern facilities are non-existent, worse outcomes than what I've mentioned will probably be the norm. In the early going, the medic's goal is to prevent exposures over 100 rads. A radiation dosimeter is a useful item to gauge radiation absorbed and is very widely available commercially. This item helps predict the likelihood of developing radiation sickness. There are three different ways that you could actually decrease the total dose of radiation that your people will experience. First, limit time spent out in the open. Radiation damage is dependent on the length of exposure. Leave areas where high levels are detected and no adequate shelter is available. The activity of radioactive particles decreases over time though. After 24 hours, levels usually drop to about a tenth of their previous value or less. Second, increase the distance from the radiation source. Radiation disperses over distance and the effects will be decreased in proportion to the amount of space between the radioactive source and the victims themselves. In nuclear reactor meltdowns, common evacuation patterns include a complete 10-mile circle or sometimes a keyhole, which consists of a 2-mile circle and an additional 3 miles radiating from whatever the directions of the prevailing winds. The third way is to shield people to decrease radiation where they are. In many cases, people may have to shelter in place. Shielding will decrease exposure exponentially, so it's important to know how to construct a barrier between your people and the radioactive source. Denser materials will give better protection. Chilling effectiveness is measured in terms of halving thicknesses. That's H-A-L-V-I-N-G. This is the thickness of a particular material that will reduce gamma radiation, the most dangerous kind, by one half. When you multiply the halving thicknesses, you multiply your protection. Here are the halving thicknesses of some common materials. Lead, you need about one centimeter of lead or 0.4 inches to uh, cut the amount of radiation in half. Steel, 1 inch or 2.5 centimeters. Concrete, 2.4 inches or 6 centimeters. Packed soil, 3.6 inches or 9 centimeters. Water, 7.2 inches or 18 centimeters. And wood, 11 inches or 28 centimeters. What does this mean from a practical standpoint? Let's take concrete as an example. 
The halving thickness of concrete is 2.4 inches or 6 centimeters. A barrier of 2.4 inches, therefore, of concrete will drop exposure to gamma radiation by half. Doubling the thickness of the barrier to 4.8 inches or 12 centimeters drops it to one-fourth. That's one-half times one-half. Tripling it to 7.2 inches or 18 centimeters will drop it again by another half. That's one-half by one-half by one-half. That's down to one-eighth. If you get to 10 halving thicknesses, well, then you drop the total radiation exposure to 1 in 1,024. To take an example, let's assume you're in a concrete bunker. You would need it to be 24 inches or 60 centimeters thick to drop your radiation exposure to 1 1,024th of the outside environment. If you can do that, people not close to ground zero can wait out the highest radiation levels. For lead, the thickness of your lead bunker would only have to be 10 centimeters or 4 inches thick. If it was made of wood, however, you'd need a barrier 110 inches thick or 2.8 meters. The treatment goals for radiation sickness are to prevent further radioactive contamination. Also, you want to treat life-threatening injuries like burns and trauma. You want to reduce the symptoms that cause people to have pain and other kinds of issues. But first, you want to decontaminate them. Anyone that's exposed to radioactive fallout has been at least externally contaminated. So you want to decontaminate them. External decontamination lowers the risk of internal contamination from inhalation, ingestion, or maybe open wounds. What you have to do is remove radioactive particles. Removing clothing and shoes eliminates about 90%, believe it or not, of external contamination. Gently washing with soap and water removes additional radiation particles from the skin. If you have group members with radiation sickness, you're going to have to treat the effects. Things like headache, fever, diarrhea, nausea and vomiting, burns, sores and ulcers, bacterial infections, and of course pain. We talked about some of these earlier. Medications that you'll need would include pain meds, antibiotics, antidiarrheals, anti-nausea agents, burn gels and dressings. These are materials you're going to want to have. You also need materials to provide daily wound care. That's very important. And this is a very complex thing. The problems compound each other. For example, a dehydrated patient with radiation sickness will often also have nausea and vomiting, maybe for weeks. This may require massive amounts of IV fluids. And that's something that's certainly not going to be in good supply if there are thousands of casualties with the same symptoms. The reality just isn't pretty. Of course, I discussed rectal rehydration as an option in our survival medicine handbook, and I've talked about it on previous podcasts. This is something that was used before there were IVs, and sometimes, you know what, you have to look to the past to deal with extreme problems in an austere present. The end result of a significant exposure to radioactive iodine is thyroid cancer, often years after the original exposure. In the case of Chernobyl in 1986, thousands of cases of thyroid cancer have been recorded mainly in those people that were less than 18 years of age at the time of the event. To prevent this from happening, we recommend using something called potassium iodide tablets. How does potassium iodide protect against thyroid cancer? Imagine your thyroid's a parking lot and the organs, receptors, or parking spaces. When you're exposed to radioactive iodine, it takes up the parking spaces, and once there, it radiates the glands, and that leads to cancer down the road. Now, if you take a non-radioactive source of iodine, like potassium iodide tablets, or iodate, that fills the parking spaces and it prevents the radioactive iodine from occupying them and causing damage. So having potassium iodide or iodate tablets on hand is a good idea. The current crisis, however, has led to a run on pretty much all forms of potassium iodide in both Europe and across the pond down here. 
Our own store ran out of potassium iodide within two days, and it seems that there are few, if any, other sources that are selling it commercially. If they exist, they're selling it at pretty outrageous prices. So you don't have potassium iodide tablets. What are some other options? One is Lugol solution, also known as strong iodine solution. Lugol's is a liquid combination of potassium iodide and iodine first formulated in the year 1829 by, well, you guessed it, Dr. Gene Lugol. Lugol's solution is used for various purposes. Decades ago, I actually used it to identify possible cervical cancers as a stain. It can be used also as an antiseptic on small wounds and even in very small quantities to disinfect questionable water. It can also protect the thyroid from radiation injury. Lugol's is most commonly available as a 2% solution. Each drop of that concentration contains approximately 2.5 to 3 milligrams of iodine. 20 drops of a water-based solution equals a milliliter. Therefore, 1 milliliter or 2% of Lugol solution equals about 65 milligrams, which is actually the same dose as a thyrosafe potassium iodide tablet. 130 milligrams, exactly twice that, is the daily adult dose in a radiation event. So two milliliters orally should be sufficient to block radioactive iodine in those people over 12 years of age and 150 pounds, or about 70 kilograms or more. For children over the age of three or adults that are less than 150 pounds, one milliliter or 65 milligrams should suffice as a daily dose. For small children over one month but less than three years, one half milliliter or 32 milligrams of iodine should be enough. For newborns, one quarter milliliter, just 16 milligrams of potassium iodide would be enough. For pets, you would use it based upon weight. By the way, this product should be taken with a full glass of water or in fruit juice, milk, or broth to improve the taste and lessen stomach upset. Not an uncommon thing that can happen. Be aware that radiation levels generally drop to about 10% of the original level in the first day, much more than that afterwards. This means that you may need only one dose total to get adequate protection. The earlier you take it before or during an exposure, the more effect it has. In total, you should not take it for more than a few days or you can develop some pretty serious adverse reactions. Usually these pills come in 10-day packets, so you probably can get more than one treatment for or at least several people treated maybe with just one packet. Only take it though until significant risk of exposure to radioactive iodine no longer exists. As I mentioned before, time that you spend under shelter and increasing distance from ground zero are your friends when it comes to radiation exposure. If you can't find Lugol's 2% solution, you might consider regular tincture of iodine. You might also consider a controversial but logical alternative, the antiseptic called povidone iodine, brand name betadine. Iodine is absorbed through intact skin and wounds, and according to the Stritch School of Medicine at Loyola University, Betadine solution used on the skin can contain enough iodine to help prevent thyroid uptake of radioactive iodine. Don't drink betadine, however. It should only be applied to skin. According to a 1989 study published in the journal Health Physics by researchers from Hershey Medical Center, an adult can get a blocking dose of stable iodine by painting 8 milliliters of a 2% tincture of iodine solution on the abdomen or forearm approximately two hours prior to a contamination with radioactive iodine, also known as I-131. The study suggested that in the absence of potassium iodide tablets, most humans would benefit from topical application of tincture of iodine. 10% povidone iodine solution, betadine, contains 1% available iodine, so you may need to use double the amount, and as it's absorbed more slowly by soft tissues, you want to apply it as early as possible once a radiation event is imminent. For adults, paint 8 milliliters of a 
1% tincture of iodine or double that of 1% on the abdomen or forearm daily starting at least two hours prior to initial exposure. If you're lucky, the authorities will warn you when in such an event is imminent. For children 3 to 18 but under 150 pounds, paint 4 milliliters of 2% iodine, double that of 1%. For children under three but older than a month, two milliliters of 2%. For newborns up to one month old, half of, of that again, or just one milliliter. By the way, newborns normally receive only a single dose total. Again, stop once there is no longer a significant risk of radiation exposure. It's important to know that absorption through the skin is not as exact a dosing method as using tablets, but should still be effective for most people. Also, be sure to first wash away any external contaminants on exposed skin with soap and water before application, and if a nuclear event has already occurred, perform skin decontamination, discard, fallout, exposed clothing. Some people have asked about iodine crystals, but it appears that they vary in composition. I can't say much about them. One thing I can say is that iodized table salt and foods rich in iodine do not contain enough iodine to block radioactive iodine and fallout are not a substitute for potassium iodide. I have to mention that potassium iodide only protects against thyroid cancer, not against any other cancer caused by radiation exposure. Cancers associated with high-dose gamma radiation, for example, include leukemia, breast, bladder, colon, liver, lung, ovarian, and stomach. When it comes to thyroid cancer, those exposed as children or teens are most prone to get it, so treat them with the potassium iodide first. Now, I have to say there's no good housekeeping seal or FDA approval on any of the strategies that I mentioned here. So do your own research, make your own conclusions. But as survival medic, you must do what you can with what you have where you are. Hey, we're adding a new segment to the show where I take questions posed to me in the past, often on our friend Jack Spierko's Survival Podcast. If you have questions you'd like to hear me address on the podcast, send us an email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Here we go. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the greatly expanded Amazon Top 20, fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. Today's question for the expert counsel comes from Roman, who asks, question to Dr. Bones, is there a pre-built surgical suturing kit you can recommend? I'm currently in the process of building my home slash grab-and-go medical bag, looking for a surgical kit to fulfill basic trauma care needs when care is not available, such as serious breaks in skin. I have previously done basic medical training with suturing, thus relatively competent in basic skin damage first aid. Looking for a kit that will contain all basic equipment, such as needles, thread, pads, forceps, etc. If there's no kit on the market, I will be buying them individually. However, it would be nice to buy a whole set pre-built by an expert. Alternatively, are there any other suturing options you would recommend? all assuming no medical help is available in the long term. Roman. Well, Roman, I'm so glad you asked that question because we at Doom and Bloom Medical have some of the best medical kits on the planet, and that has been verified by survival experts and published in New York Magazine of all places. Our suture kit comes with four sterile instruments, a needle holder, a curved Kelly clamp, an AdSense forceps, and an iris scissors. It comes with a sterile pack, sterile drapes, 4x4s, iodine wipes, bacitracin antibiotic ointment. You get four non-sterile gloves for prepping the wound and a pair of sterile gloves for the actual procedure, as well as two silk sutures that are 18 inches long each. The kit is also very affordable, but you know what? If you find a suture kit that tops that, you should buy it. By the way, we have a special on a suture kit and staple kit package that comes with a USB flash drive of my popular suturing and stapling class, something you might find educational. 
Our surgical pack contains a bunch of instruments, an entire collection of clamps, scissors, scalpels, probes, and what you won't find in most other surgical kits, a set of two retractors for better visualization of the operative field. Okay, that's it for the shameless plug. Maybe I should spend a moment talking about when a wound should be sutured and when it shouldn't. Skin is your armor, and a breach in it means trouble, serious trouble. Common sense dictates that we would want to close a skin breach to speed healing and lock out infection. There's much controversy, however, as to whether or not to close a wound. When and why would you choose close one, and what method should you use? After rendering first aid, which includes removal of any foreign objects, control of bleeding, cleaning and irrigation, you have to make a decision. A laceration may be closed by tapes, medical superglues, staples, or sutures. What are you trying to accomplish by closing a wound? Your goals are simple. You want to repair the defect in the body's armor, eliminate dead space, which could harbor dangerous pathogens, and promote healing. A well-approximated wound also, by the way, in the end, has less scarring. It sounds as if all wounds should be closed. Unfortunately, closing a wound that should be left open can do a lot more harm than good and could possibly put your patient's life at risk. Take the case of a young woman who was injured some years ago in a zipline accident. The fall left her with a large laceration to her thigh. She was taken to the local emergency room where they put more than 20 staples to close the wound. Unfortunately, the closure locked in dangerous bacteria and caused a serious infection which spread throughout her body. She eventually required multiple amputations. The lesson to be learned here from this tragic story is this. The decision to close a wound should not be automatic. An important consideration when making this decision is whether you're dealing with a clean or dirty wound. It stands to reason that most wounds the medic will encounter off-grid will be contaminated. If you try to close that wound, bacteria and dirt may remain inside the patient. If so, infection will soon become apparent with signs of spreading redness, swelling, and warmth. An accumulation of pus, also called an abscess, may form under the skin. Such an infection could even spread to the bloodstream, a condition known as septicemia. This is a systemic infection that involves the whole body and becomes life-threatening. Leaving the wound open is less problematic in that it allows the medic to clean the inside frequently and observe the actual healing process. It also allows inflammatory fluid to drain out of the body. The scar isn't as cosmetically pleasing, but it's the safest option in infected cases. Certain wounds should not be closed. They include wounds that are at high risk for infection. Many wounds, as I mentioned, incurred outdoors are dirty. Clearly contaminated or infected wounds, for example, human, animal bites, things like that. Injuries caused by a dirty, sharp object or or maybe a red, swollen wound that's already draining pus. Open wounds that are more than six to eight hours old or so are risky. Even the air has bacteria, and there's a good chance that they have colonized the injury already. Small, deep puncture wounds, these are difficult to adequately flush out with irrigation. Wounds with significant tissue loss, also called avulsions, especially if the cut edges are so far apart that undue pressure is required to close them. Now, in some situations, a wound left open can be treated with what's called a delayed or secondary closure. After observation of, let's say, 48 hours or so, some actually will close a wound if there's no sign of infection. Here are some factors that would suggest that closure is appropriate. The wound is caused by clean, sharp objects. The laceration is long or deep. If you can see yellow subcutaneous fat in the wound, it should be sutured. The exception, by the way, would be a puncture wound from an animal bite. These bites are loaded with bacteria and should be kept open in austere settings, although they may be closed in modern emergency room settings. The wound is located over a joint, 
of moving parts, such as the knee, will constantly stress a wound and prevent it from closing in by itself, and if the wound gapes open. There's a lot more to it, but it's important to realize that it's easy to throw a stitch and close a wound. The key is to gain the judgment of when it should be done. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. That's all we have for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Survival Medicine Podcast. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.